Hi, we're here with Jeremy Longhurst of Broadwater talking about next year's ISAS meeting, which will take place in May 2021 in my home state of Florida in Boca Raton. So Jeremy, tell us what kind of resources or events will be available at the meeting for some of the younger surgical trainees, be it medical students or residents. Certainly. There are, I think, two big needs that younger surgeons have. There's the needs of information about how they build their career. And that, I think, often comes through discussion and interaction with surgeons who are obviously in the later stages of their careers. So there's going to be a series of seminars around topics uh, such as if you want to go in an academic career direction, how do you begin to build that? Uh, those young surgeons will be able to get a lot of personalized information during those sessions. And then I think the other direction is, of course, uh, building your own uh, surgical skill set. And so there's going to be a large amount of case discussions, again, with uh, surgeons in the later stages of their careers to really address some of the uh, questions and issues that younger surgeons have about particular cases. And I think sometimes it's easier uh, for young surgeons to be together, to ask those sorts of questions, as opposed to being in a large general session room where perhaps some of the more developed surgeons, older surgeons, wouldn't have uh, those types of questions. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have as our guest, Juan Uribe. Juan is a personal friend of mine. We've known each other for uh, over two decades. Juan is now the uh, Director of Spine at the Barrow Neurological, the storied institution where he's followed in the footsteps of Volker Sontag. Juan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Mike. Uh, happy to be here with all of you guys today. So Juan, we could be talking about just about anything, and I know you have a passion for cars and uh, rums and, and cigars and all that, but we wanted to dive deep into an area that uh, is unique to you, I think, and, and that is your very long and complex and successful journey from South America into the United States. I mean, you're obviously one of the most well-known spine surgeons in the world now, but the beginnings were quite humble, right? So tell us about that, and and I believe like you were you you grew up in Colombia, right? Yeah, it's it's a it's actually Mike a long story. You know, we, we know each other, Mike, for twenty years probably. But um, I always say that uh, I'm probably one of the longest uh, trainee ever in neurosurgery. I end up getting like almost sixteen years of training between residents and fellows, but. Yeah, I um, but the story is interesting. I believe it or not, I was born in Boston. That's why my beautiful New England accent. I was. <laughs> but it's interesting because uh, my father is a neurologist. So when he was resident, doing his residency and fellowship at Mass General, I was born there. And then um, obviously, 
Colombia was totally different at that time. And we migrated when I was one year old. And basically, if you ask me, I always say, yes, I'm a Colombian because when I'm watching a soccer game between Colombia and America, I actually root for Colombia big time, you know? So, you know, I grew up there, um, you know, growing up in a family of physicians, you know, my grandparent was also physicians. So it's like a line of physicians in our family. I felt very attracted and to the neurosciences. And so I did med school in Colombia, you know, we're from Medellin. And this one was amazing because at the time of my med school was at the peak of the Medellin cartel. So you grew up from one ER to other ER uh, taking calls in the middle of these uh, cartels uh, fight. And then I finished my med school uh, in Medellin and then I joined a neurosurgery residency also in Medellin. It's called Universidad de Antioquia, which is a really good program there. Um, and then I spent uh, my whole residency right there. But the interesting point is uh, this one. Um, you know, because I was born in America, quotation, I'm American, so I don't need to have any visas to come to uh, USA. So I decided like Colombia was not good. Um, when you are a surgeon, and probably you might know, uh, being in South America and Europe, you name it, the top of the line of medicine is America. You know, most of the research, everything. So uh, being a surgeon and be able, or a physician, be able to practice in America is the equivalent, like when you are a, a soccer player and you were able to play on the Spaniard League, on the European League, or when you are like a cyclist and you are able to run for a team that goes to the Tour de France. So for us, be able to perform and, and you know change patients' outcomes and, and do research in USA is the top of the line. So that's what my, my main objective, how can I get into the American system? Um, I'm going to stop a little bit in here. You have a question because from here becomes actually more interesting. Right. Well, Dr. Uribe, great place to stop, actually, because what I'd like to ask you still deals with your time in Colombia. We had a previous episode with uh, one of my attendings, Dr. Ricardo Fontes, and a co-resident, uh, Andre Bierfalon, who talked about their experience growing up and training in Brazil before coming here to America. Um and so one of the, my favorite parts of that that I heard from them was talking not about the health system or training per se, but comparing and contrasting the patients in their home country to those here in the States. So I know it's been a long time, but from your recollection, how would you say the patient population and, and the interaction with them clinically differed in Colombia compared to here in the States? Yeah, that's a great question, John. And actually, is like a day and night. It's amazing the cultural difference on the patients. I'm going to tell you something, for example. If I see one of my patients, my Colombian patients, the way that I see it, my American patients, they will never trust me. And I'm going to explain you why. So in Colombia, if you don't touch the patient, you don't examine, you don't do every test, you don't uh, take their shirt off and put it in a gown and do a million uh, different tests, actually you're not a good 
physician. You actually taking advantage of them. And in the other side, if I do that one in America, oh my gosh, I, I will be an HR in a minute. This, <laughs> you guys know, yeah. So th there's a lot of differences, actually. Now, Juan, I know there are a lot of differences in training between countries and especially between South America and North America. But can you remind us, how long is the residency in Colombia? It's a, it's a six-year residency. Wow, six years, huh? But how old were you when you started? I mean, the, the, one of the advantages of being uh, do med school in Colombia is that you jump directly from high school when you're 17 years old into med school. So we don't have this lag of four years of college that is exists in America. So I was like a really, you know, 20s, 20, 22, 20 something when I started my residency in uh, neurosurgery and I finished by 26, 27. And then from there, I started my journey trying to get into American system. But which is interesting, Mike, is that, uh, I mean, competing with American applicants to a neurosurgery residency is very hard, you know, because the standards are different. Uh, in America, for example, the med school is basically dedicated to ACE, the uh, step one and step two of the USM USMLEs. And in America, in Colombia, it's different, you know, and even, you know, it's a lot of difference. So you have to catch up. So what I did is um, when I started my residence in Colombia, when I was PUI2, I asked for a year of like sabbatic, like if I can take a break. And I actually uh, went to St. Louis in Missouri. So I spent one full year there with two purposes. One is trying to learn some English that actually looked like I didn't, I didn't learn at all because my horrible accent. But second one was like preparing for the, you know, USMLE tests. So once I spent that year and I passed the tests, I came back to America, to Colombia and then I continued with my residency. But that way put me in a little better position because when I was PUI 6 in Colombia for the uh, research year, I asked Dr. Harris in Miami if I can spend a year on his lab as a visitor. And uh, obviously, uh, he gave me his hand, and then uh, I did the research right there. And that research year opened a lot of windows for me. And that's um, uh, I met Dr. Marcos, I met Dr. Levy, I met Dr. Green, uh, a lot of the residents that are right now in Miami that now are attendings, like a Jonathan Jagged, um, a lot of uh, 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 social connections I did. Uh, but then I figured out that after, you know, my, my passion was skull base and vascular. And I spent all this year, I remember drilling mastoids, doing the retro sigmoid trans uh, labyrinthite approaches and preparing all these specimens for Dr. Heros and Dr. Marcos. But I figured out that the fellowship with Dr. Heros was so competitive that it would be very hard for me to get into the system. But at the meantime, I figured out that Dr. Green and Dr. Levy, they were so nice and they have a bigger fellowship program. So I was thinking that maybe I can fit on that group. So anyway, I finished my research year. and Obviously, I came back to Colombia, finished my resident in Colombia, and then I started applying for a fellowship in Spain. And that's when I got the opportunity to come as a clinical fellow to Miami doing a Spine fellowship with. Bart Green and, and um, Alan Levy 
as you remember, uh, probably, Mike. And so it, at this point, and for years of your training prior to that point, it seems obvious that you did have a, a plan to come to the United States eventually, as you said, to practice and to uh, further your career here in, in the States. So kind of walk us through that point in your career where after your training, after your fellowships, what was the process like for you to fully transition here and start to pursue a full-time position within the United States coming from Colombia? Yeah, that, that's, that, that's a great question, John. Um, so the, the first thing was how you can get into the system. So obviously Miami is a great city for any South American because, you know, you, you guys live in Miami, Mike and, and John. You know that uh, uh, Miami is the big Latin American um, city. So when you go there, you you tend to blend easier into the culture and learn because there's a lot of people like me. So I get there. I start in Miami. And then the first thing is obviously, um, I mean, I, I like it a lot, the, the research part, the new techniques. And with mentors like Dr. Green and Dr. Levy, I was able to grow and do a really good year of fellowship. But the, the first challenge came when that year was coming to an end. My options were to come back to Colombia or find a way to stay in here. And actually at that time was when I met Mike, Mike Wang. Actually, Mike uh, is the, is, was the fellow that followed me in Miami. So Mike was coming from, from California, you know, from uh, UC. Uh, with, you know, Mike always been a rock star. Mike is like a, if we were golfers, Mike Wang is basically Tiger Woods for us, you know. Mike was coming from very early. He's always been a rock star. So he came and he followed me as a fellowship, but I usually have Mike as one of my biggest mentors. You know, I was trying to follow Mike Wang type of uh, what he's been doing because whatever he does always is successful. And uh, so actually Mike helped me a lot when I was resting. I remember that I was showing him how Dr. Green likes to do laminoplastics, this and that, and the transition. But that year, actually, I was lucky because Dr. Green and Dr. Harris told me, I don't have a position for you in here as a resident, but we can keep you as an intern in Miami. And if there is any position opening in America, we can help you to get accepted. And this one was huge for me. So I spent that year kind of doing my internship in Miami after doing my fellowship on Spine. And uh, there were an opening in Tampa. And uh, in Tampa and the neurosurgery program, it was a small program, but I knew it. I was aware that I couldn't uh, first get into the match. It was very hard competing with all the other uh, applicants. But because of my previous experience as a neurosurgeon and my, my now my spine fellowship, I can bring value to a program that need a you know, senior or someone that, that was living. So that's the way that actually I was able to get into the USF program in Tampa and I start my residency again there, which was very interesting is that I was expecting like a senior job and it was crazy guys. Uh, I remember when when I was finishing there, actually Mike was finishing his fellowship there. And I, you know, at that time I have a great friend that I still have in Miami, which are Steve Bunny and even, you know, Levy that now, Dr. Levy that now is the chair. Uh, they were telling me, Juan, you have to be careful, my friend, because 
the guy that is chairing Tampa, man, that guy is something else, you know. And this is actually what Dr. Cahillan. And he was a very interesting guy. Unfortunately, he had an accident in an airplane landing in Memphis, going actually to Metronic. He was a big spine guy, and actually he he died on that accident. But he was a good mentor to me. Well, he was very critical. And for example, one of the few um, uh, phrases, a few things that he told me is, I remember he called me one day to the office, and he's like, uh, listen, Juan, um, I like you, but there is something else that you have to know. It's not your fault, but they train you wrong. You know, the way that you do a spine, that's not the way. And I have to show you what a spine is. So to see how controversial was this guy. And then, you know, and then obviously um, my senior job as a resident in, in, in USF never was a senior job. First day that I walk on the hospital, they just gave me a pager to take in, you know, junior calls, all the scout job. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be tough. And it was so hard, guys that you're not going to believe three months down when I start my residency in Tampa, actually I have a really bad episode of diverticulitis. And it was so bad that actually I had to be uh, as an inpatient with IV antibiotics. And then they said, you're too young and you have such a bad diverticulitis that you may need to have surgery. So I actually ended up having surgery, believe it or not. And uh, it was a mess. I was three months out of the residency. The chief residents were thinking that didn't want to work. I mean, you can imagine how was this. But um, so, one remind us again: How old were you when you started again with your training in America? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna tell you exactly. I was uh, 32 years old when I started the residency again, which wow. which is very hard. You know how it is. You know, residency is very hard on you, and and then also doing junior job and you know, with the language limitation, you know, and not being uh, doing the med school in America, you kind of hit the wall a little bit to get through it. But, you know, but at the end, I was so blessed that I had the chance to to be trained again. And to be honest, if I can go back, Mike and John, I will do a residency again. And the way that I did it is I was like, okay, I'm going to do exactly what I didn't do right in my field residency. Things, for example, like a, I, every case that I had the chance to scrub in, I jumped right away. I was not anymore like a, oh, this is just a shunt. Oh, this is just a small micro disc. Oh, this is just an, I, you know, wound wash out. Because I learned on the, my first residency that if I was taking advantage of that, each little opportunity to scrub, it will make me a much better surgeon. So for me, it was great because I have, you know, at least five full years of of an amazing opportunity to just become a better surgeon. And that one get, you know, obviously translated on, on the future, which, you know, help more people and improve outcomes. Um, so that's what the story in Tampa itself. You're so right. And I'm sure many of our listeners can learn from your example. But it I'm sure it wasn't easy to go back to being a resident from the start point again after graduating and working as a fellow in Miami, right? Correct, Mike. Yeah. And which is interesting is, you know, uh, uh, when I was doing the fellowship in, in Miami, I don't know if you remember, uh, Mike, but there was this ortho fellows with, um, with Dr. Um, um, oh my God. 
Yeah, Eismond, and, and, and this guy was Mark Weinstein. I don't know if you remember him. So it's interesting because we finished the fellows at the same time. Same thing with Steve Bunny. We finished the fellow at the same time. Steve became an attendee in Miami. Mike Weinstein, uh, Mark Weinstein went to Tampa working for this Florida Orthopedic Institute. And my job was going back to junior residency. <laughs> that was not an easy one to swallow, you know. So thank you for all that information, Juan. And, and take us to the next stage. How did you make your way to the Barrow after you finished all of your work in Florida, training in Miami, training at USF, and of course, running the program in spine at USF in Tampa? Yeah. So, but, but, but watch this, Mike, which was very interesting is, so let's put it this way. So you finished also your fellowship after that. And I remember you, Mike, took off like a rocket. You know, you were up too much on the academic, on the organized neurosurgery. I remember all your publications. And I remember that, that you know, I used to talk to Dr. Green and Dr. Levy once in a while because they were great mentors to me. And they were like, a, we have to have Mike Wang in here on this and that. And, and which was interesting is that then after finishing my residency, you end up six more years, the game for me was how can I catch up to Mike, to Praveen, to, you know, all my friends that they were, I was supposedly to be a part with them and I'm still behind. And so I, I, I have to put my foot on the gas pedal and trying to, to get in two, three years what you guys were doing in C five, seven years. So this one, because of actually a very interesting things. First thing that you see, I don't know if you remember, Mike, I called you, you were doing a uh, focus on uh, neurosurgery focus, some dedicated, and I was trying to put some paper on uh, um, ankylosis spondylitis. And um, I remember that you told me do this and that, and I invite you to Tampa when I started as a, as a um, attending and obviously if it was not, you know, for your guys' help, you know, like a Resh Haid, Chris Shaffrey, Praveen and yourself, I mean, it was an amazing mentorship. And then, you know, obviously the rest is just, um, I was lucky that, you know, minimal invasive surgery was very early and the lateral approach, you know, the x leaf approach was, uh, right there with absolutely no academic foundation with nothing validated and you know i took advantage of that and it is what it is and then i you know start publishing and getting through everything and um suddenly this opportunity show up at bni but really how did you do it many of our listeners are are they're on this long road some are international they may even be trying to follow your footsteps and come to america or canada or north america can you give these folks that are listening out there any advice or encouragement when they're trying to become, let's say, an American or Canadian neurosurgeon? Yeah, I mean, that, it's like everything in life, Mike. You know, you have a passion, you're honest, and you work hard. Uh, things will come to you, you know. And uh, I would say it's all about if you want to do something and, and you have the drive, things have to come, you know, obviously you have to hit a lot of walls, you know, and, and you guys been through a lot also, you know. Um, but I think it's, it's, I mean, if I, I, people ask me a lot, you know, my resident right now, and if I will do it again, I always say, absolutely, you know. I will not even be doing half of what I'm doing, you know, and um, I'm having a great ride, and, you know, all, all of you guys has been very instrumental on this, and I always say, 
every American has to go and live outside of America for at least six months to a year to see how beautiful is America, what standards, what is the quality of life, and what we have in here is perfect. I just get mad when people say that America is not good anymore. Listen, this is amazing. This is heaven to me, you know. This is a beautiful place to stay. Well, Dr. Uribe, you're, you're speaking to my heart there as, as someone who loves this country um, very much myself and, and also certainly speaking from the resident perspective. It's incredible to hear you talk about, you know, after being a fellowship trained neurosurgeon, going back to junior call and your biggest takeaway was not to miss a single case. So I'll, I'll certainly take that advice to heart, as I'm sure will our listeners. Um, so maybe to, to wrap things up for us, why don't you just finish the journey and kind of take us through that final step from Tampa out to Arizona, where you are now? <laughs> Great, John. Yeah, that actually was a very interesting because, you know, when, when you grew up in South America, we are very culturally, we are very loyal people. You know, we if you give me your hand, John, I will do whatever it takes to pay you back. You know, we, we're very loyal and we always appreciate where we're coming from. We don't like to forget our roots. So when I was in Tampa, when I finished my resident, Dr. Van Lovren and Dr. Valley, they told me, one, we want you to stay as an attending. And they helped me a lot. They support me. You know, Dr. Van Lovren was like, a one, go out as much as you can. I will never judge you. Go and carry the flag. You know, he was very supportive. And, um, and I was like, a, listen, I don't have a reason to leave Tampa. You know, I'm having a great time. I have my resident, my fellowship. I publish and I'm doing my research, but I always say there is two places that I will consider go because it's kind of continuation of the way that I see the world on the spine. I'd like if I got a mass general uh, offering or a BNI, and I always like a well, listen, Sontag, you know, it's like a Sontag is like king of the kings and mass general. You know, when you say Harvard, I mean, this is it's almost impossible. And, and, but it's very interesting because um, when Nick Theodore decided to move to Hopkins, they make this opening in here at, at BNI. And, and I just got this letter. I, I bet that a lot of people get it. I'm sure that Mike got this letter. And this letter, like, I hey, listen, we're trying to find someone to replace um, Nick Theodore. And we heard that you can be a potential candidate. So I was like, uh, I mean, why not? You know, my life has been always trying to to take, uh, you know, challenges and going to the next step. So I just submit a letter of, of intention and they invite me to interview. And which was very interesting is that when I was giving the grand rounds uh, during the interview, I can tell that Dr. Spessler and Dr. Sontag like it a lot, my style, you know. And I always have been very honest, you know, uh, something that I learned from Dr. Harris. I'm not afraid to show my complications. Uh, I'm not afraid to show how hard is what we do, because if we are in the same profession, I don't get nothing by telling you that I don't have complications or problems, I don't struggle. And so then, you know, the process wanted get through it. And then suddenly they offer me the position and I end up in here and, um, and it's amazing, let me tell you. This is like, I mean, the, the best example is like this. I was playing for the Buccaneers, let's say like that. They were football players. 
And now they offer me being like a startup of the Patriots, you know, like a startup quarterback, something like that. So, I mean, the resources and everything has been amazing. And, and this one just uh, expand my, my ability to continue spreading the world of the minimal invasive spine surgery, which is that I love, and also give me more abilities to do more research, which is how we advance our field. And, um, and then, you know, keep working collaboratively with all of you guys. And that was the, the basically the entire story, John and Michael. And now I'm here, I'm very happy. And I mean, I cannot ask for more. Well, Juan, I want to thank you again for being on the podcast, sharing your, your very personal story and, and all the intimate details. It was an honor to have you. We look forward to seeing you at the next uh, in, in-person meeting, whenever that might be in 2021. No, thank you, Mike and John. That's a, a great opportunity. And hopefully, you know, this helps others. Hi, this is Angela Richardson, the Skull-Based and Cerebrovascular Fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, reminding you to sign up to contribute to the NREF through Amazon Smile. The NREF has contributed $30 million to the future of neurosurgery over the past 40 years. If you have any questions or problems with the registration, you can email us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com.